0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of our Red Inca and YouTube network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. So yes, let's get on with another Wagon Wheel podcast here over on Spotify Live. I have my Richie Benno t-shirt on from Bodyline t-shirts. So that's fun. I do like this one. My son likes this one. Uh, He doesn't really know uh, anything about Richie Benno, but he likes the fact that someone got famous for saying, morning, everyone let's go through the patreon questions will says what's the worst twitter social media outrage cycle you found yourself at the center of how does it feel to be in the center of a backlash uh interesting there's a really weird one i got involved with that had nothing to do with cricket where as some people may know i once did the cover photo for one of p diddy's albums you can't say that and not fully explain the story but i'm going to this time google it i did it's weird and recently someone did a video essay about that album and they tagged me in it. And I kind of made fun of the fact that I'd been tagged in this video, despite the fact that obviously my album artwork had nothing to do with it. How dare they? And the people involved got very upset because they thought that I was making fun of the creator. I was actually making fun of myself, but they didn't know that. And there was a mass pylon. And it's one of those things that in my case, because it was so, it wasn't like I was being angry or anything like that. So in my case, it was really interesting to sit there and just be like, if we were all in a room, this. In two seconds, I'll be able to explain this. And you can't explain it on Twitter. And once you explain it to one person, seven other people are involved. And it became this, you know, huge thing of... And at the end, it didn't matter how many times I apologized for something I didn't do wrong, because they were all furious anyway. It's a really, really interesting place. Someone was telling me recently there was an argument they were watching on Twitter over something, again, not that important, like a bit like the one that I was just talking about. <laughs> and they were just watching it, just going if these people were actually able to talk to each other, it wouldn't happen. And I remember the comment sections in the old days. There's some people that I absolutely despised in comment sections of of some of the major cricket publications back in the day. then you meet them and you're just like, this is the person I cared about, this is the person I thought about, (laughs) and you quickly move on. But you can't really do that in Twitter. It does sort of stick around. And the problem is that even if you're wrong or even if you're right, if you justify or you educate on why you have said the thing you've said, it doesn't matter because then you have to say it to the next person and the next person. And like if it's a cycle, it's a cycle, right? (laughs) It It spreads without you. So... It's a really weird place to be. I can't think if I've been... I'm sure I've been in other ones about cricket, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But it is quite a weird societal thing these days. AB said, after 32 overs in the OPL, um, Narine's economy rate was 5.38. How would you advise Basman to play him from the other end? Is there a reason bat- batters tend not to go down the pitch room He's so difficult to pick up that nullifying the tone would surely help. Okay, so the piece, reason you can't go down the... the pitch to him, and I believe, I could be wrong on this, I believe he was the first spinner to really work this out, is he bowls at a length where you can't. He's basically bowling fast enough at a length that coming down the wicket doesn't really make sense. Maybe Syed Ajmal might have been another one as well. Uh, If you can spin it both ways, that obviously causes big problems to the batters, Um, even the ability to turn it away a little bit um, at that that speed. And so, therefore, um, you have to sort of play them off the back foot as much as possible or off the front foot, but knowing that any turn either way can beat you. Um, I'm not sure there's a great way. I, I've always wondered if a bowler's like him, you know, you don't, there should not be more cross batted shots. So specifically kind of sweeps, but maybe where you come down on the sweep a little bit more. Um, but, you know, having talked to people who've played T20 cricket, they usually say that if, if a bowler isn't being swept a lot, it's probably because they're not particularly easy to sweep. Uh, so, uh, in his case, I would, I would assume it's the length and the pace, which make it a little bit difficult to sweep. But yeah, as far as playing him, I don't. Th- I think what you see with Narine is quite often goes through patches where this happens, um, and then you know, and then people start to work him out and edge back up to six, six and a half runs and over. I don't think you. I, the only thing I would say is it, he's going at five point three eight. I think he's averaging around twenty five to thirty. I would think it from a tactical point of view. It's probably worth sending up some people um, to to hit out against it. Sadeep said, "I recently heard this can be done reading a podcast, and was intrigued by the Creek stories, fables presented um, in the book. I also, remember an episode of Double Century podcast uh, where we go through um, one of those. Yeah, I think it would make a great documentary. Justice Bodyline. Yeah, I think one of the things, and we've seen uh, really good other storytellers in other um, mediums. Um, oh, sorry, in other sports, I should say." tell their sports' early stories really well. I think the problem is that cricket's early stories were so incredibly well told early on that they've almost become a bit, I'm trying to think of the right way of putting it, I think a bit cliche, a bit dated, a bit, yeah, we've heard that one before, but the actual stories, I mean, Ted Pooley, um, and the one that you mentioned is Spoffer and W.G. Grace. If you go back to one, it might even be the first episode of Double Century, the one on Ted Pooley, That's an incredible story. I don't care if it's about cricket or not. It's just an incredible story. And I think one of the reasons I did Double Century was I really wanted modern fans to. I didn't want them to have to go and dust off old books. I didn't want them to have to read books by old conservative men as well, because a lot of that early history is told uh, very much from from you know old posh men, um, especially from England. Yeah, I wanted to tell the stories from from other vantage points and, and to have a look at cricket history from the view of today. Um, but you're right, there should be documentaries. We're still hoping that one day we can turn Double Century into a documentary of sorts, animate the, the episodes that we have at the moment, obviously go forward and look at more and more episodes. But we're a long way off being doing that. But yeah, the early stories of cricket, because it... You know, I say this all the time, but like WG Grace was like famous, I don't know, what, 35, 40 years before the modern Olympics. We were, it was so early. And some of the stuff that went on is crazy. Like the story of, um, of the guy who was upset at the uh, chucking and literally gets on his horse and rides off. You know, basketballers and footballers aren't getting on horses and leaving places. You know, with the sort of stories that we have are just incredible in cricket. And I, I'm with you. I think they should certainly be told more often and better. Uh, Nicholas says, uh, what do you think Cricket Australia's end goal with players like Cameron White and Steve Smith were um, when they were batting at number eight? Well, there's a blast from the past, Nicholas. Uh, Do you think they ever considered them to be viable long-term spin options? No, I think they probably thought. I mean, both of them, by the time Cameron White was picked for Australia, his spinning was almost dead. I think they still had some high hopes for Steve Smith's bowling at the time he was picked. But even then, I think they were thinking that if they could get them as, well, in, in Steve Smith's case, they were thinking he could bat number seven. No one actually thought he could even bat in the top six at that point. And in Cameron White's case, they were thinking if he could bat number six and do the sort of Marcus North role. And to be honest, they, if you think about it, Nicholas, they had success with Marcus North. So I think that's probably where those ideas came from and and how they kind of thought about them and how the, and how they went away and how, uh, why they happened. But, they were clutching at straws. I remember telling Marcus North that he had the best figures of any spinner in Sheffieldshire cricket that year. There's absolutely no doubt they saw that and just went, why not? Um, and it's obviously why not was uh, maybe the uh, the reason they didn't win that Cardiff test. But yeah, there was, they were certainly struggling uh, back in those days. Rajashi says, You have mentioned that Khan's peak was much better um, than all others. Uh, probably not than Bradman, but yes. Can I please mention some numbers or stats to back it up? I've, I've done it heaps of times. For a decade, he averaged over 50 with a bat and under 20 with a ball. I'm pausing, so I know a lot of you are listening to this on the audio, but, I mean, that's incredible, right? That That's another level of performance, and I think you'd have to go through I'm not sure. I might have been in my Sam Curran video, but I've written about it a few times. I think he could say his batting average was more of a plucky player who was hard to get out rather than a bit like what we've seen from Reverend Jadeja over the last couple of years rather than a dominant batter. But when you're averaging 50 and you can't go out for a decade, um, it doesn't matter that you don't make, you know, 100 after 100. And he was so hard to get out and he made so many um, good scores that, that backed up Pakistan. And then on the other side of it, he absolutely was still destroying with the ball. Um, He probably wasn't their main striker all the way through that period. Uh, But he started off, obviously, as that bowler and then changed into another bowler, which just, it just, we've never seen anyone dominate a decade like that outside of Bradman in the 30s. Although I suppose Bradman never quite did it for a decade uh, because of the war. But, you know, the the two strongest decades probably are Bradman and um, and then Imran Khan. And the best way to look at it is if you average over fifty, you're considered a great batter. If you average anywhere near twenty with a ball, you're considered a great bowler. And so, in his case, he was worth two greats to the team. And I've always said that, basically, Bradman as well, right? He was worth two great batters in any team. So, yeah, there's the stat to back it up. It's uh, it's next level that stuff. Ian says, inspired by Stokes's likely appointment. I think since he's done, uh, since you've sent that message in, he has been appointed. How does captaincy generally affect bowling roles in terms of when, how, how much, how successfully skip was bowling comparisons to the pre-captaincy days? We haven't had that many bowling captains in test cricket. You tend to find these days that most bowling plans are sorted out off the field. And so it's only when things go wrong. There are bowling captains who don't bowl themselves that much and there are bowling captains who bowl themselves a lot. And so the bowling numbers, generally when I've looked at them, Aren't really, they don't really sway in either direction. What I would say is more often than not, when you become captain as a bowler, you're older and you're probably not gonna bowl um, as many overs as you did when you were younger, regardless. So it probably looks like bowling captains slow, slightly bowl less than they should, but that's probably not the case. They're probably just because they're getting into their late 20s, early 30s, or mid 30s in some cases. But yeah, it's um, it, look, it's certainly something that's uh, it's talked about a lot. But it's, it's a bit like cap, when we looked up batters and captaincy, how much uh, captaincy affects batting. And you're like, wait, when you break it down, you look at everything, it doesn't actually affect captaincy. My guess is it would be almost identical in uh, bowlers in that uh, you would have a very, very similar situation there. Reggie says, Elon Musk has started to venture into all sorts of things now. He is South African and he's very likely to play some cricket growing up. Could he play in the England top order? Look, I've said for ages that, and I use him as a joke, And I used him as a joke like 10 years ago, well before he was massively famous. But it wouldn't be that hard to basically start a Rebel League. And and Elon Musk was always my joke. And it got harder to use him as a joke as he got more famous. But the point is that he's a guy we know who is massively into cricket and has lots of money. He could buy cricket and change it like that. I mean, Kerry Packer took over cricket and didn't want (laughs) You know, we saw Lalit Modi try and do it. I I forget the name, uh, but the ZTV guy. um, They could have done it easily if they didn't have a falling out this is the thing cricket is not run to make the most money it's not run as efficiently as it should be made the players especially outside of well almost everyone outside of the Australian test players really aren't paid the right percentages compared to what you know major athletes do in other sports It makes them all very very poachable and I think it was David Warner who who talked about when the Rebel League came to him I think the number they mentioned to him was 50 million dollars He's not getting that from Cricket Australia, is he? And realistically, that sounds like a huge amount of money, but it's not because if you took all of cricket and no matter how you package it up, it's probably worth between 4 and $8 billion over a what four to eight year period. You can pay the, the top players a lot of money. So uh, yeah, Elon Musk or anyone else could do that realistically. I mean, Elon's probably busy these days buying Twitter for, I don't know why, something to do with free speech or he's upset that some of his friends are gone. I don't really understand why he bought Twitter. Johnny says, in Amazon's attest, Payne chooses to bowl at the Oval in the 2019 Ashes. Langer talks about how surprised he was at the decision. The coaches, captains, and analysts discuss and agree these decisions beforehand. Surely, in any other major sport, top teams would never let a decision like that to be left to one person on his own. I think most major sports probably allow those decisions um, to be, you know, I mean, if you've got a head coach of a basketball team or an NFL team or a manager in football, I think. The buck generally lies with one decision-maker. Where cricket is more confusing, Johnny, is that we have multiple. Um, uh, as an analyst, it's very rare I was involved in the toss, but I would usually give the toss stats and give my thought uh, uh, thoughts beforehand. Coaches, and, uh, coaches are different. Some coaches are very strict on what should be done at the toss. More often than not, though, the captain does have the final say. Unless Payne changed his mind beforehand, the thing that would confuse me about that is that I would have thought he would have told Langer, but I don't know their relationship. I have certainly seen situations where captains and coaches, the the coach basically says, it's your toss, you go with it. And there are many other captains and coaches who have far closer relationships. Um, And sometimes, you know, the analyst is involved. Very rare that I'm out on the ground looking at the pitch on, on match day. Um, but I usually do my research beforehand, look at the numbers and then talk to the groundskeeper uh, and literally say, you know, what are you thinking here? Tell me a bit about this this um, pitch and those sorts of things. Satchmo says, on how much captains contribute, I have two examples, Ian Chappell's helping to Australia a world number one and Ray Illingworth's strategy that helped uh, win the uh, series versus West Indies in 1969. How would you assess these? Well, the first thing that's important is you're talking about cricket when the captain was pretty much the only person the the you know warwick armstrong and douglas jardine had huge impacts on their team that's not captaincy today Sachmo. um that's the most important thing to do that uh in chapel helping his team to be number one i'd have to go back through all the numbers and and have a look at that and have a look at the team have a look who they were going at, up against and all those sorts of situations railing were a strategy to help them win in 1969 it's the same again Right. And what generally happens is I'm not having to go at anyone's book or um, or on any of those sorts of situations. But essentially what we tended to do in the history of cricket was give the captain a lot of credit because it was such an all-encompassing job. There were so many different details of it. You were the manager, you were the coach, you were the captain, you were the head strategist, you were the analyst, you were all those sorts of different things. And so when things went wrong, right, we, we tend to look at the captain. But a lot of that does go back to the early part of cricket, where it was a generally a gentleman captain from England. Um, they were It was their team. Their name was on the team, right? And so we gave them a lot more credit. My guess is that if Ian Chappell helped his team become number one in the world, there might have been a lot of off-field stuff there, but it's also because they had a really good team. Because you don't become number one team in the world unless you have a really good team. And on the Illingworth thing... He needed the players to be able to back that up. Uh, I'd have to have a look in it, into it. But it's very interesting that you've looked at two very, very old examples. I think the, the best modern example is the Brendan McCullum one, of course, which everyone talks about. And the more we learn about what happened in New Zealand cricket, the less it's about Brendan McCullum. Still had a very, very big impact. And you could say that perhaps it couldn't have been done without him. But you could say the same of perhaps someone like Mike Hessing. You could say the same of the, the, peop- uh, the first-class cricketers who changed the system. You could say the same of the pitches being changed in New Zealand. We tend to go towards the captain because he's the one diving out on the field or making the emotional speeches, but these things don't happen on their own. Christopher says, a lot of crowds in England have become almost darts light and have a lot of football chants. It's very loud, uh, booze heavy. A lot of that isn't relevant to cricket uh, with the chanting. It was prevalent at the 100 uh, in which the ECB wanted to target families, and they obviously limited alcohol sales. My question is, do you think the ECB are okay with this? As attendance-wise, crowds are still going up. First three to four days, I sold out Edge Bassam for the India test compared to four years ago. Yeah, I think you get this in Australia. uh, You get this with with the Big Bash. There are certain crowds at the Big Bash which I found were more lad heavy, if you will. And there were certain crowds that I found were more family heavy. Generally, if you've got a whole family going, you then have usually women and men. If you have a whole family going, you then have two different generations. If you have a whole family going they're not just going to chant, they're probably going for the general experience, which might involve listening to chants, of course. You're building generations, you're building new fans. That's generally what all sporting organisations want, but hardcore fans usually go back to that kind of behaviour, whether it's specifically what you're talking about or anything sort of in-specific um, involving that. There's certainly there's certainly um, cases where once it goes too far, that seems to be a bigger problem. And also, if you get to a point where families aren't going because of those crowds, that becomes a problem. I would say that's where the ECB is probably more upset, uh, or more worried. So the the Oval is the one I know the most about. And the big problem was the Oval was that families weren't going to the T20 games as much anymore because it would become just a darts football-like environment, and that's not what the families uh, wanted to take their children to. The 100 was probably a slight step back from that, but it's still going to... The same people who like T20 cricket are still going to come to the 100. But it's making it so that the family still feel there are parts of the ground that they can go to, that there are facilities and all those sorts of things. I've always thought that the crowd chanting and all that sort of stuff and the the drunken atmosphere of English T20 games, it's like, yeah, the biggest problem is you don't have facilities for children. When I try and take a child into the ground, it's a nightmare. That's the biggest problem for those grounds. It's not always the crowd behavior and you get, if you get fewer families there, what is that going to be made up of? Probably more people who want to drink. So I think the ECB are aware and all cricket boards are aware that, you know, that sort of rowdy fan um, is going to go to any environment, even in the countries where you don't have drinking at the cricket. But what you have to have is facilities available for families to be able to go. And I think that's the bigger problem um, and setting it up so that it's a family day out. Um, which, again, I don't think cricket was doing beforehand in the, in England, certainly. Kennedy says, if I could afford to buy an IPL team, if they do keep getting more expensive, save up, Kennedy. Uh, I'd like to be thinking that my first order of business would be to hire you as GM. <laughs> Done. Should I hire you? <clears throat> How would you go about getting an edge over the other teams? Would Benny Howe play every game? I think you should hire me. I think my, my pitch with most of the teams that I've talked to is – I don't think they're getting the right level of due diligence, which means that they make a lot of decisions based on other people who are already in cricket. I don't think they put enough stock into very simple technology that could actually help their players get better. I don't think they have good enough systems in place to make sure that they're improving their players every single time. I don't think they have good enough systems in place for the off-season uh, when they have those sorts of things. I see you also said, would Benny Hal play every game? He'd probably be in my franchise, if I'm being honest, although you know, Dan Weston and I might fight for him. But yes, you, you know, I, I've talked to a couple of teams of recent times, uh, two IPL teams, a couple of county teams, and I've shown them what I can do, and they usually look at it as, and, and say, this, this, there's too much. You're trying to do too much. I'm like, this is what a professional sporting club should be doing now. And it's usually too big a jump. So whether I'm the ideal person or whether I'm the person who should just be continuing to put my hand in the ring and eventually find it, um, I don't know. Um, but it'd be good fun. Um, and I really enjoyed running St. Lucia and I never got a chance to run them while the tournament was on. Um, although I almost feel like that's the less important part of a GM. But it, it would have been great to be able to do that. I think I learned a lot from that job. It's, it's, I, I've said before, I loved being a GM of a team. I don't think I'm going to get another offer. Um, although you never know. I know I probably will get another offer. That's probably wrong. I may not ever take another offer. <laughs> it's maybe the better way to put it. All right, we've got some questions here. All right, first question. You there, Rahul?
2: Hey, Jared, can you hear me?
1: Yes. What's your question, mate?
2: So I was watching yesterday's uh, game between Hyderabad and Gujarat, and mm-hmm. I started noticing that in IPL, there's no score big enough in the last two overs to be chased. That's the kind of pattern that's becoming these days. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, it's okay because it's IPL. As compared to international cricket, in IPL, they've been scoring runs easily, like chasing runs easily in the last two overs. And my first reaction was, yes, as you've also mentioned before, uh, the standard of IPL has gone down. Also, because it's franchise cricket, obviously the standard of cricket will be lesser than international cricket, I'm assuming?
1: No, it's not lesser
2: than international cricket. I mean, yeah, so the whole premise was that I was like, why is IPL, like, why are they able to chase scores if there's no score big enough? And you don't see this in international cricket that often.
1: You don't see as many games of international cricket. We've seen some huge chases in international cricket as well. What did Australia do to Pakistan in the World Cup? And these, those were on pitches where it was almost impossible to score particularly quickly. So I think what you're seeing here is flat pitches uh, where the ball isn't going soft at the end and, and teams are doing it. It's all the same players. <laughs> um, so I really don't think that uh, I, I really don't think that there's probably there's so few international T20 um, games, but yeah, no, I definitely think you could see these exact same chases in international cricket. That's you're just you're just seeing a couple of um, good chases of recent times in the IPL, and you're forgetting how bad the o, you know the uh, the IPL was last year when we played on the worst pitches.
2: But these pitches, okay, if you just look at the pitches, like I saw yesterday's mm-hmm. over by Marco Jensen. Like, the bowling was bad. Like, even I, who's not a bowler, could see that this guy just bowled a full toss. And after that, it's predictable he's going to bowl a short one. And that's exactly what he did. And Rash Khan hit him for two sixes in a row. And that's what I've started noticing, that these bowlers are... at least try to give themselves the best chance, and even that is not happening. And that's a pattern that i started noticing in this IPL, at least, that it's exciting that these runs are scored, but it's not fun when you know that, okay, no score is big enough. They're just going to chase it down. So I guess... Is it is it I my mean, what, recency bias, what, or is it just actually happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't had a look at how many teams have won batting first versus one batting second, but you, you, you're saying that, and what I'm seeing is a tournament where everyone's losing wickets at the top. So far, it's been a power play bowling tournament, and and you're talking about the other end. So it's really interesting for me that you're focusing on that. Uh, We've looked; teams can chase between, you know, it used to be, the West Indies used to make sure that the run rate never got above ten and over. I think now teams believe between you know 14 to 18 and over uh, for two or three overs is possible, so they've certainly they've certainly changed their mindsets. But that's not a IPL thing. Like I've heard everyone in T20 cricket talk about that, including the international teams. So I find it. I I have to go back through the numbers and have a look. You know how often um, uh, teams are doing that. My my memory is, and I don't know, up until very recently, it was still like. 51% of teams won batting second and 49% won batting first. And when you listen to other people, everyone seems to think it's like 80% batting second and 20% batting first. You know, there's a reason we haven't got rid of the toss, so we haven't we haven't had a look at that uh, any massive uh, rule changes or playing condition changes there. I don't know, I saw Chennai struggle to get um, a chase the other day. I mean, I think we've seen a few, haven't we? I, I wonder if you're just focusing on the like couple of times when we've seen teams chase and kind of forgetting about the team the times when they haven't chased.
2: Right, um, as I said, it could be a recency bias as well.
1: I'd have to have a look through the numbers, mate. But yeah, my, my thought of this tournament so far is that what we've seen is slightly better pitches for fast bowlers and they've been dominating at the top. That's been the pattern that I've seen uh, more than anything else uh, in, in this tournament so far.
2: Okay, so it's not because of those, like, because... I focused on the first conversation you ever had about this IPL is that because of 10 teams, the standard is going to go down. And my idea was maybe because of the standard going down and that is why what I'm noticing is what I'm noticing.
1: But why would that just be happening in death bowling and it's not happening to the batters? Do you know what I mean? So the standard going down is really, uh, it should be more drop catches. We should be seeing more mismatch cricket uh, where, you know, you see people, who, especially the guys who are batting, five, six, seven, um, some of the local players, um, even some of the overseas players at times where they're coming in and their their level is just not quite high enough uh, for this competition or their level's high enough, but they're not suited to the conditions of the IPL. And we should be seeing players like Shivam Dube and, and Deepak Huda and those sorts of players starring a bit more because it was such a hyper strong league before. I don't know why that would... Like, do you know what I mean? Like, w- why would that make the batter stronger than the bowlers? There should be there should be a general uh, problem uh, across the board. You're
2: right about the drop catches. That's definitely has increased. It
1: seems like it. I haven't looked at the numbers yet, but yeah, it the seems like it.
2: the tournament, do you still think that the standard has gone down? Well,
1: oh, the standard's definitely gone down. And there's, I mean, a it was impossible not to. I, there were some people who were really upset at that piece. And it's like I'm not saying that the IPL is shit because before it was eight teams you had so few international players playing in it, but the ones who were playing in it were mostly the best players in T20 cricket around the world. You had very few Indian players who weren't either Indian-level players or potential Indian-level players playing on their sides. Well, now we don't. We've had to get extra players on every team. You know, the in- international players are thinner and the, uh, the local players are thinner. It's not like in the space of a year, Indian cricket got 20% more talented and yet, you need 20% more players playing. So, I, I think in the long run, it might mean that it's a more talented league because you give more opportunities to people. But in the short run, it was obviously always going to be a slightly weaker league. Got Thanks a lot, Jared. Thanks for your question. Uh, if you're having problem uh getting through, feel free to just add your question on uh, on the chat. Uh, but I'll try and get to Oh, let's try Nikhil again. Nikhil, you there? Hey, Jared. Can you hear me? I can this time. What's your question, mate?
3: All right. So, uh, firstly, good evening, uh, Jared. I just love these. Uh, this is my first Spotify Live. Uh, I st- actually struggled to find the damn app. I thought it was Spotify Green Room first.
1: It was Spotify Green Room. Don't get me started on the fact that they bought an app called Locker Room. They changed it to Spotify Green Room, and now they've changed it to Spotify Live. Just stick with the color frame, stick with the name, and go with it for at least twelve months. Anyway, sorry, mate.
3: Even twelve days would be. Anyway, yeah. I have an interesting question. And I just want, so a lot of people, especially I've been reading in the British newspapers, you know, The Guardian, Telegraph, all of these guys just say that there are no slight signs of Anderson slowing down. You know, he's, he's still bowling as well as ever, you know, and they point out to his bowling average. It, put me, it took me back to when Ishan Sharma was dropped from the Indian team. It's probably for good now, but his stats over the last two or three years are fairly good. You know, it's still like 29 or 27 bowling average. Even Anderson's bowling average was excellent. But I think what people are failing to understand is that just like they judge batsmen uh, through averages, they're judging bowlers through averages as well. Whereas actually, what they should judge Anderson and maybe, you know, even guys like Ishan Sharma is their strike rate. Because a batsman, if he plays a shit shot, he gets out and that's it. You know, that sort of ruins his uh, tangible stats. Whereas a bowler like Anderson, his strike rate was 80 with the ball in the ashes, right? So he's not really troubling Australia's batsmen. He might come in. He might go at two and over and he might end up with, you know, stats like three for 60 in 28 overs. But that's not going to hurt Australia because...
1: But that's what he's always done. What you're talking about is not a new thing for him. That's what he's always done. He's never been in a great strike rate bowl, especially outside of England. I think where your logic slightly falls down is that when you're talking about Ishan having a bowling average of 28 or 29 over the last couple of years, it was 20. So over the last handful of tests, he's ballooned. Anderson hasn't had that ballooning uh, yet. And even in Australia, where he wasn't bowling his best, he still was getting regular wickets, and he was still actually keeping that record down. You make a very good argument that Anderson may not help England into the future because he's never been able to take more than 3.2 wickets a test away from home. I think that's a very, very solid argument with Anderson. Where I don't think you make that argument is that there's any massive sign of decay. So the only sign of decay we can find was that he stopped taking wickets in the fourth innings. I think it was the fourth innings.
3: Or even the second innings a the match, the third innings in the match.
1: I think the third innings was fine. I think it was the fourth innings. I think, I think I'm think i right in saying that. I'll have to go back and have a look at that. But when you looked at the numbers, it was like, when you looked at the control numbers, it just looked like bad luck, right? It didn't look like it had anything to do with fitness or injury um, or anything like that. Uh, I think with Ishan Sharma, and I'm not sure that they were right to get rid of him, but they had a bunch of other bowlers they thought could replicate what he was doing. And it was notable that he wasn't bowling the same way that he had when he was one, well, for a long time, probably the best bowler in the world. Right. There's no way of looking at Anderson and thinking he's dropped off and his numbers haven't specifically dropped off. And, you know, unless you say he dropped off in Australia, but he always drops off. Has he become
3: better as a bowler? As some of, as some people say, I don't think he's become better as a bowler. Right.
1: What do you mean? Like of recent times,
3: yeah, in recent times. So his average has come down, but his strike rate, because the economy rate has gone down, but his strike rate has gone up at the same time. And therefore, I'm not sure. I mean, how do you look at it? You know, in uh, for, for a test match bowler, is strike rate as important, especially for the opening bowler, is the strike rate as important as your average?
1: No, average is always way more important. There's a problem with that. Most of the best bowlers who have very low strike rates, or oh, sorry, most of the average bowlers who have very low strike rates they don't help the bowler at the other end so if you're bowling with anderson he's completely controlling one end and is going to be taking wickets whereas if you're bowling with stephen finn he's going at four runs and over and you can't put pressure on at the other end and if he's not actually taking a wicket at that time you don't get anything out of it there are no bad bowlers with low averages there are more bowlers with lowish strike rates overall who are not particularly good bowlers right so, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't worry about that too much. But that's also, most bowlers don't have incredibly low strike rates. Uh, there's only a handful ever. There's, you know, you've got your Abadas and your Stains. Both of them play in South Africa. The wickets feel, f- fall more often. Most Australian bowlers don't have low strike rates because it takes a long time to get wickets in Australia. So I'm not too worried about that. What I'd be more worried about is if if I was watching him and it looked like there was noticeable signs of a problem, and that, that was being matched up with his average, then I've got no problem with them moving on from him if, if he's no longer at the top of his game. But I haven't seen that.
3: One last point, 30 seconds more. Because this took me back to when I look at batsmen who've been dropped after playing a sizable amount of tests. You know, I'm just taking the example of the Ian Ben or You know, There has been a large variance in their average from their peak or to what it's ended up at. You know, Four <laughs> or five runs, drop off. But you don't see that with bowlers. Is that because bowlers just get dropped more quickly than batters or yep. bowlers might be like out of form they, might, they may not be impacting the team as much but still they might end up with figures let's like say 2 for 60 which doesn't affect their average as much as it shows I mean they, their impact is still lower but because they can always end up with a few cheap tickets at the end of the innings they still sort of maintain the average even though their impact is lower for the team because I never see a bowler whose average is 23 after 60 and then it goes up to 29 after like Mm. 80 tests or 85 tests, for example, from 43 to
1: 38. Yeah, no, because they get dropped straight away. There's two reasons for this. One is the batters run the game, (laughs) more often than not, and the way that we look at bowling is usually incorrect. The second is that a bowling unit is usually four players, right?
3: So there's less room for error. There's less room for ability.
1: Batting unit is at least six, maybe seven, maybe eight, you know, maybe nine. So you can stuff up for a while. Also, we know that batting, I mean, you know, look at Coley at the moment, look at Greg Chapel back in the day. We know that batters can go duck, 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 because they could just get a bunch of bad decisions. They could run themselves out a couple of times. Uh, they could go out very early on. If you go five tests without taking, you know, more than five wickets as a bowler, my guess is that you're probably going to get dropped almost no matter how good you are, right? At the very least, you'd be rested, And they, you know, if it was a physical thing and if it's not a physical thing, I mean, Gillespie, even Gillespie probably only played two extra series than he should have. And he's an Australian great bowler, right? And he still only got two extra series. If he was a batter, how many extra series would he have got? Honestly, seven, eight, nine, you know. Ponting's book is really interesting. I was saying that Ponting was finished a long way up and it did not go down well. And in Ponting's book, he admits it. He admits almost from the point of which I thought there was a problem, he 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 said, looking back, I should have left the team. And they just kept playing him. And, you know, if that was a bowler, you just can't, you couldn't hide what what was going on with Ponting if he was a bowler. So I think as a batter, I think they felt like, oh, he'll come good. He'll come good. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of batters who play on well beyond their best. And uh, with bowlers, it's just harder. It's just a smaller team um, when it comes to that. Thanks for your question, though, mate.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Oh, sorry. James, who I think can't talk. Sometimes it feels like my 10-year-old could get Aaron Finch out any day except the one day he made 150 against England. Yeah, I think um, I think with Aaron Finch, it really depends on what day you're seeing him. He's very much a – he's a player that for about a month, you can't – no one can dismiss. Um, he's got – weirdly enough, I mean, he always used to nick off um, – to balls outside of stump a lot. Then he developed a new problem with the LBW and the bolds um, with his front pad. He's always, I don't know, what's the, on the verge of another technical flaw. And he does have a lot of technical flaws. That's why he doesn't make a lot of red ball runs. But also because of the way he plays and the way he can play on the up, there's almost a bit of Vera to his batting in, in a way. It's very hard to bowl a good length to him. Um, and so when you can't bowl that good length to him, um, and he's just going to drive them anywhere he wants, um, and also just smash them over the leg side if he needs to. It means that on his best day, there's not a lot you can do to him. But on his worst days, there's so many different ways you can dismiss him. I think you know he's just one of those players. You, you, he is a he's a very flawed player who worked out by being very smart the best way to be successful in white ball cricket, and more often than not. It, you, the game of white ball cricket is in your favour. And I think that's why. And, you know, I've been watching him since he was very young. I never thought he'd make any runs in, in red ball cricket. I thought it was astonishing that Australia picked him in the Test matches. But they did, p- partly based on his attitude um, and his mindset. Um, and they thought it would come good, but it didn't. And, yeah, you know, I don't think there's ever been a player who has not consistently made runs in first class cricket who can make runs consistently in Test cricket. Uh, even guys like Vaughan and Truscott, you hear about, they, would, they, they had made runs consistently in red ball cricket before. Uh, picking a white ball hitter doesn't necessarily work. And I think in Finch's case, he would have needed to have been in the absolute best form of his life and he probably could have got away with about 10 tests. And I think the next 10 tests he would have struggled because we've seen that pattern for, from him over and over again in cricket. But he still is an incredible player and he's very difficult to bowl to, I think. All right. Who else is in the chat? Anav. Hi,
4: Jared. I wanted to uh, ask about two batsmen. Uh, one is Gavin Martin, and uh, second is Grant Thorpe. I believe both mm-hmm. of them are pretty underrated. I mean, if without Martin, I don't think Australia that great team would have won in 2004. And his, I saw his stats. He has scored runs all across the globe and in tough in tough situations. But I think so, his batting average, that 40 by 46 in that great batting period. I think so. That, do you think that is one reason he's not being talked in that great category? Well, he's not being talked
1: in that great category because Australia had about four players who were better than him. No, but if you see his uh, like variety and range. Yeah, no, he was a magnificent player. But was he better than Ponting?
4: I mean, in subcontinent, yes, but not in Australia, South Africa, right. and England.
1: Was he better than Hayden?
4: No, no, not even Hayden.
1: Was he better than Steve Wall? No. Do you see what I'm saying? Was he better than Gilchrist? I know he ended up with a similar record and Gilchrist scored twice as quick as him, right? So what you're looking at there is there's a lot of old England teams with great batting lineups too where the fourth best batter was incredible, but it doesn't matter because they had a bunch of players who were better than him. Also it, is also, it is very much worth remembering that he didn't make it when he was young. So... He's slightly older than Ponting, right? Ponting, Ponting had to fight through that era and learn his game at the test level. I think that Damien Martin came back when he was ready. Um, if Damien Martin had played the whole time at test cricket, he probably has a much more similar record to maybe someone like Mark Waugh, which is fine. I mean, you know, Mark Waugh should have averaged more as well, but he didn't really have to fight through those trickier bits because he was dropped and because he couldn't, you know, he was dropped from the Western Australian team so i think that plays part of it but if you you know you look at the players sort of before and after him i think it has more to do with the fact that he was probably never in the top 3 batters in in what in any of those australian sides despite the fact he was fantastic um, at times and you know there were certainly a couple of years where he was incredible um he was though he did get batches of runs weirdly going back to aaron finch he was, in some ways he was a bit little bit similar to aaron finch He would get very big batches of runs and then obviously go missing as well. I think if Damian Martin has a very big 2005 Ashes, things are a little bit different. There's also the fact that he quit midway through a series in quite dramatic circumstances. There's also what happened with him early in his career. I think there's a few caveats with Damian Martin. I think if you watch him play, um, and if you ever watch any highlights of him, you would unquestionably say, how is this guy not one of the greats of batting? But at the end of his career, he probably ended up with a very similar record to VVS Laxman, I would have thought, and very similar players in, in some ways. I know VVS sort of batted longer, whereas Martin's runs came in, in a batch, but very similar in that they were just better players in their team. But when you watch them, they often look like the best player, but they weren't consistently game after game. I love watching Damien Martin, but Michael Clarke was probably a better bat than him again. We haven't even mentioned him from before. So there were so many players that overlapped with him that were as good, if not better. And I think that's probably the main reason he doesn't get remembered massively. Sorry, mate. I'm just going to have to remove you because your your call's gone all weird in my ears. If you ask about Graham Thorpe, yes, I think... Graham Thorpe's, probably his biggest problem was he never quite dominated at the level that he needed to. Him and Alex Stewart probably, if you look at just their batting numbers alone, pro- just deserve more credit. But they played in losing teams. They're remembered for, you know, going out at key moments, which there's nothing you can do if your team isn't as good as the opposition. Graham Thorpe also just left before the 2005 Ashes. He plays in that series. Let's say he has a very good series um, there and, and England still win. Yeah, maybe that's more of a crowning achievement in Graham Thorpe's career. Um, but you're right, I think he's a fantastic player as well. But again, he probably did, he doesn't have that great average that makes it automatic. But I think if you look between Graham Gooch and Alistair Cook, Alex Stewart's probably the only other batter that was really on in that level. It just happened to be that that's a terrible level. that was a terrible time for English cricket, um, and they were known as being kind of terrible. And I think that probably rubbed off onto um, off onto Graham Thorpe a little bit as well. Um, but he played some brilliant innings. I th- you know, he was a magnificent player, no doubt about that. Bamshi, you there?
0: Hey, Janet. how are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm very good, loving the bow tie. What's your question?
0: Thanks. Uh, my question is about the 2010, 11 Athens, was by England. Mm-hmm. I know they had a really. Originally- Really good batting lineup and a pretty decent uh-huh. attack with Swan and then Breston to give you a fifth bowler. What would you say are the major reasons why England haven't been able to replicate those kind of? Games? I know with the, there's been a decline in batting skill in England, but uh, after 2010, none of their series have been compelling. So that one uh, really special for I
1: mean, Swan had a functioning elbow, so next time he went back, he didn't have a functioning elbow. Uh, which meant he had the ability to stop the Australians from scoring heavily in the middle. I think that was really, really important. I think Tremlett was, you know, that was probably the only, it was probably that in that series against India that we ever saw Tremlett anywhere near at his best. And I think he was much better in that series against Australia. I think Australia played really poorly. They completely overestimated their side I don't. I think they underestimated England. They didn't plan as well as England did. That was maybe one of the last major series Australia ever played, where I think you could say that they just weren't thinking about it. I've got a feeling that they named a squad of like twenty people or something coming into that series, and then the Australian batters tired out their bowlers. Sorry, sorry, the England bowlers um, tired out the Australian batters massively. Started at the Gabba, and then uh, and then they did the same thing at Adelaide. Uh, and then uh, it's funny, I was talking to Matt Pryor about this when we were on Talk Sport recently of they couldn't believe how bad Australia batted in Melbourne in, in that match because uh, the series was one all at that point. Australia tried to drive everything on the first morning and the site. Dean Jones, I used, to, I used to make fun of Dean Jones for running the same column every year, don't drive to the MCG on the first day unless you're in a bus. And, uh, you know, they all were driving on the up. President didn't even bowl particularly well. But yeah, so I think it was. I think it really was a combination of um, uh, yeah a few different things there. But I do think the Australian bowlers just got very very tired uh, because of the English batters, and um, I think the combination of Tremlett, Anderson, Swan, Resden in really good form, Stephen Finn even took a few wickets um, to start the series as well, if I remember correctly. It was very clear very early on that they had a lot of bowlers in either career best form or near career best form. And they had the batters to be able to bat very, very long periods of time. And I'm, you know, going back, Australia didn't really have either of those things. You know, uh, they really just didn't – they weren't a very strong team at at that particular point. Um, And I'm not sure they knew what their best team was as well. They were still holding on to Ponting, and I just said that Ponting is admitted in his book, I think, by that point he was finished. Did they – was it Katic they let go of for that series, I think? Because they didn't want three batters over the age of 35 – Hussey had been in terrible form, but found form. It was Kadic and Hussey were probably the two that you wanted to go into that series. They were never going to do that. So they were always going to drop one of Kadic and Hussey when realistically the person to drop was was Ponting. You know, they didn't have very strong bowling. They didn't really understand. I mean, you know, the Xavier Doherty thing, the Michael Beer thing shows that they weren't really thinking about cricket very clearly at that point. And, uh, you know, Mitchell Johnson won them one test on a whim, really. And, you know... At the press conference afterwards, I don't bet on cricket. But if I had a bet, if I would have bet on cricket, I would have bet on England to win three one. And I might have written about that, or put it in a video or something at the time. Because at the press conference afterwards, Mitchell Johnson admitted he didn't know how he took all those wickets. It was such a fluke win. So that was their only win in that series. So I just think a lot of things went right for England, and a lot of things went wrong for Australia. But I do think England taught Australia a lesson in preparing for major series, which they since Buchanan left, especially, I don't think they'd really been thinking very smart about cricket at that point. Great, thank you, Dave. No worries, thanks for the question. Drew, are you there, Drew? Hi. What's your
0: question? Do you think Josh Butler's recent form in the IPL uh, warrants him back in Test school?
1: No, I don't think anyone's form in the IPL warrants them playing a Test match. They're two different things. Just Paul, is one of the greatest white ball players we've ever seen. Um, the numbers back it up. Our eye test backs it up. This series, I actually think he'd underperformed in, in the uh, IPL until recently. Hey, I mean, since really struggled to he's had like third highest average after um, Louisville Stokes. So. Third highest average, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. He still averages 32. That is better than Johnny Bersow, though. Yep. Johnny Bersow averages 29. It's not much in it, right? So, but your question wasn't, should Butler be in the team? Your question was, should Butler be in the team because of his IPL form? Those are two different questions. The problem with Butler is we've seen Pete Butler in test cricket. He, I don't think we're ever going to see better than what we've ever seen. And he can only really bat at number six or number seven, which causes massive problems because their problems aren't at number six and number seven. The problems are at number, well, openers and three and five and Six, and they, they, you know, it's everywhere, right? And Butler doesn't solve any problems. So when Butler came back, they actually added an extra problem to their team that they didn't need. Now, there are two ways of looking at it. You could say that Johnny Bairstow's problems are largely technical and that teams had worked him out. I think I could agree with that. But you can't also deny the fact that they had one of the better wicketkeeper batters in the world in Johnny Bairstow. They brought back a specialist number seven batter who averages three more runs than him, who can't bat as high as him in the order, who isn't a better wicket-keeper, and they eventually gave the gloves to him, ruining Johnny Bairstow's confidence. Now, let's say it is a technical problem for Johnny Bairstow. He still needs his confidence. If, if you've got a technical problem, you need confidence even more. They absolutely shattered a, a quality test match player to upgrade it by an average of three and downgrade it when it came to wicket-keeping skill, right? I don't understand their decision. I've never understood the decision. I think it's fair to say, I mean, based on what you've just said, I think their top seven would be Root, Stokes, Butler, Burns, Denley, and Bairstow. Like if we're talking about the top seven best batting averages, they've already tried all that, right? What What is Butler going to give them other than a middling 30s average? He doesn't strike particularly quick. He doesn't take the initiative away from other teams. His strike rate is basically the same as Bairstow's. I don't really get it. I don't understand what they're getting from having Butler that they would get from not having Butler at this point. Does that make sense? Nope. I think he's gone. I hope that made sense. Uh, with Umar Malik taking the IPL by storm, Sunil Gavaskar's comments about him only being the fastest in the modern era. Do you think players are actually faster before? <laughs> uh, the sitter said this in the chat. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, there's no way that Umar Malik isn't the most consistently quick Indian bowler. Uh, there might have been Indian bowlers who've had individual balls quicker than Umar Malik. But no, this whole thing, that bowlers used to be faster in the, o- in the older days. Uh, we had a speed test in the late 1970s, early 1980s. In that speed test, we saw that Jeff Thompson was 10 kilometers an hour quicker than anyone else. No one else was even close to Jeff Thompson. So if Jeff Thompson was a freak and was so much quicker than anyone else, you know, Bob Beeman type figure, fine, let's go with that. I'm happy to go with that. But why was everyone else 10K an hour slower than him, right? So even if he was 100 miles per hour, right, even if he was that speed and he was tested at 152 and that speed test was highly flawed compared to what we use now, but no one else was even close to him. Where are all the other bowlers? There were bowlers who were 25 and 30 kilometers slower than Jeff Thompson in that bowling speed test, all right? So we know that bowling is much quicker now, and then we have, so, if you had the fastest bowler in the world now, there's no way there would be 10 kilometers quicker than anyone else. And that's the same in Sean Tate's era and Shalv Akgar's era and Brett Lee's era, all the way back to Tomo, you would never have that gap that wide. So we know that fast bowlers are quicker than ever before, right? It's undeniable at this point. And uh, I'm just gonna see if there's anyone else who's come through. Vampshi's going to have to have the last
0: question. Hey, Jared, can you hear me? I can. Yeah, what was your question, mate? So you've talked about how analysis and footage has helped uh, bowlers more than batsmen. Is there a reason apart from that bowlers make the play and they start basically the game of cricket? And is that why analysis has helped them more than batters? Do you see anything happening in the future that could help batters improve? I think the biggest problem is
1: that most of the footage we have of cricket is from behind the bowler's arm, because that's where we film everything from. If I was working with the team today, someone was asking, it was a Kennedy asked about the general, you know, me being general manager. The fir- every time I've talked to a team, I'm like, the first thing you need to do is get a long lens camera at each end of the ground and film every opposition bowler from front on, All right? That's what your batters need to see. They don't need to see the back of them running in. That doesn't, that doesn't help them particularly much um the second thing is that the cameras then have to be very close to these bowlers we have to get as much information as possible on them uh, whether that be through long lens or super slow-mo or however that works so that we can see exactly what they are doing then we can start to break down bowlers better I'm trying to think uh, there, there's the super slow-mo cameras that are obviously coming through they might help batters a little bit more um uh, and then the other thing is probably what we started doing now, which is being able to say to someone in, <laughs> so I wonder in baseball it works because baseball is very much like the death, right? And I wonder if it works more at the death than anywhere else in cricket where, and which, why, which might, why we might see um, some of the big scores that someone was asking about before at the death. I'm not sure, but if there's a possibility of most bowlers only have like three deliveries At the death if that makes sense or three lengths or three lines or whatever it may be that most bowlers don't have multiple options at the death and so we should be able to give a batter a lot of information of what the three balls are going to be that you're most likely to face so that beforehand they can plan that in test cricket we know it's only one ball and that doesn't matter (laughs) so I, i don't know my guess is that if you look at Test cricket, where the bowlers are really dominating, I wonder how much of it is that maybe there is a way of working out the wobble ball. I, I don't know if there is, but maybe there is a way of working out the wobble ball. And if that's the case, then analysis is probably our best bet, or, or you know, or a genius player working it out on their on their own. But yeah, I think the most important thing is get the cameras in front of the bowlers, get it so that you can see their hands better, and uh, that would that would completely even the, the playing field. I would have thought uh, maybe not even the playing field that would help you have a huge advantage over bowlers that batters currently don't have.
0: Great. Thanks,
1: no worries. Thanks to everyone. Sorry about the many, many technical problems. The, our our ghost caller and, poor um who was it ah no uh, poor mangled line and some of the muted guys early on but again thanks to everyone uh for popping into this spotify live remember you can follow me on spotify live then you get told about whenever these podcasts come up talk to you again next time bye Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel, and if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do, and that is great, so please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you, because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube, where we make all kind of crazy stuff, like complete history of New Zealand opening batters, and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Mukundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orijossi Sempati makes the podcasts into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics.